Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahal Brennan, and as always, I'm joined by my co-presenter, John Dorney, from the Irish Story website. If you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, you can check out the archive on our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, and on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get the chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes or Spotify or whichever platform you get your podcasts on, as it really helps us and makes more people aware of the show, and we really appreciate it. This week, we are really pleased to be joined by two great guests. Dr. Marion McGarry is a writer and historian and lectures in Galway Mayo Institute of Technology. She is the chairperson of the Sligo Stoker Society, and her forthcoming book, Irish Customs and Rituals, How Our Ancestors Celebrated Life and the Seasons, will be available this year from Orpin Press. You can check out Marion's blog at drmarionmagarry.weebly.com, which has links to many previous articles she has written. Dr. Fiona Gallagher is currently researching the effect of the 1832 cholera epidemic on Sligo and other provincial Irish towns. A lot of her previous work has concentrated on the urban fabric and development of Sligo town. Fiona is the author of The Streets of Sligo, Urban Evolution Over the Course of Seven Centuries, and on her blog, drfionagallagher.weebly.com, you'll find many more articles on the subjects we'll be covering on today's show. You're both very welcome to the show. And Marion, if I could start with you first. Dracula is arguably the most well-known horror novel ever written. But for the listeners who aren't familiar with the author, could you tell us something about Bram Stoker and his background? Yes, I can. Thanks, Cahill, for having us on the show. So everybody knows Dracula. He's one of the most famous characters in literature. But what an awful lot of people are unaware of is that the author of Dracula, Bram Stoker, is Irish. He was a Dubliner and he was very much a dub. They have this notion that he's a British author because he spent most of his life working in London. So, yeah, he's he's rooted in Ireland, born in Clontarf in 1847. And What really makes him interesting from our point of view, from myself and Fiona's point of view, I suppose, is the fact that he has Sligo roots. Um, Myself and Fiona are both based in Sligo. He had a a mixed bag, if you like, in terms of his career. He worked in Dublin Castle. He was educated at Trinity. He worked quite a lot around the country in Ireland, in rural Ireland. He was promoted to an inspector of the Petty Sessions clerks. Basically, this enabled him to travel around Ireland and inspect the petty sessions. And the petty sessions courts were basically petty sessions for for petty offences, such as if you didn't have a dog license or if you fell out with your neighbour. So he was sort of exposed to this very kind of colourful rural underbelly, criminal underbelly, if you like, in that respect. They weren't quite criminals. But anyway... So he ended up writing a book called The Duties of the Clerks of the Petty Sessions in 1879. And a year after that, he moved to London to take over management of the Lyceum Theatre. So before that, he had been very much interested in theatre as well. When he was working in Dublin Castle, he had been sort of doing mixers as a theatre critic and he would publish theatre reviews. And he did. He was a bit like a modern day blogger in that sense. He'd do all the work for free just because he was interested in it. And he came to the attention of um, Henry Irving, one of the biggest actors of the time. 
Irving encouraged him to come over to London and gave him a job as theatre manager. And then he had this sort of second act, if you like, of his life began where he had all these kind of adventures managing the theatre. He went on grand tours of America with the theatre company, but he was also sort of at the mercy of Henry Irving as well. He was quite a narcissistic character and he sounds like the boss from hell. As always, Bram Stoker had lots of energy and um, in the same way that he had been doing his work as a theatre critic, he started writing while he was working for Henry Irving, even though he was incredibly busy. And he started publishing fiction then, mostly horror fiction. And eventually this culminated in Dracula in 1897. Dracula itself, it had sort of moderate success when it was first published, but it really didn't take off until the advent of film in the 20th century, long after Bram Stoker had passed. And it just became a huge, the Dracula himself just became a huge character. And Stoker had kind of invented in the book lots of the things that we recognise about vampires in fiction today. Um, like the vampire had existed as a fictional character long before Stoker had taken it up. But with Dracula, the book, he uh, brought in things like Catholic symbols being used to vanquish the vampire, garlic being used, you know, the vampire as being an undead figure. And of course, Dracula himself coming in from the East. And a lot of people have said, a lot of critics have argued that Dracula is uh, representative of disease. And that's really what brings us to this podcast today. The whole idea that Dracula is representative of disease. And my own research into Stoker's work I suppose, comes from the point of view as, you know, I'm a historian, I'm based in Sligo, and I was very much interested in Stoker's Sligo roots and how they influenced Dracula. Well, that's the thing, really, isn't it, Marion, that when I was growing up, we always assumed that Bram Stoker had based Dracula on the mythology and legends of Central and Eastern Europe. And it's only really in the last few years that I've noticed newspaper articles and radio shows talking about the influences he might have had growing up in Ireland and how that had influenced the writing of Dracula. Yeah, um, so like in recent years, you're absolutely right. People have been turning to new evidence that's kind of emerging that um, Stoker wasn't necessarily that influenced by, you know, um, Vlad the Impaler and, and the mythology of Transylvania. I mean, it's always been known that he was a bit of a literary magpie in the sense that he picked things and he'd save them in his creative imagination and reuse them. And the whole Vlad the Impaler thing and, you know, the whole Transylvania thing, he, he was a library researcher, much like ourselves. And uh, he'd go through library books and pick things out. The Transylvanian thing, a lot of people argue that that is a very primitive society in 18 in the 1890s when Stoker was writing Dracula and he kind of picked that to almost represent a similar primitive that he saw maybe in the west of Ireland when he was touring and doing his work with the Petty Sessions because the west of Ireland in the mid to late 19th century could be very primitive. You had people who were very superstitious, God-fearing population who were willing to believe anything. I mean my own current research interest in Irish folklore and Irish customs really kind of brings that into into sharp focus like Ireland wasn't really that modernized until the mid 20th century in that sense there's parallels between Ireland and Transylvania in many ways at that time so I suppose Stoker used Transylvania to show society that was other you know uh, but that wasn't necessarily Ireland 
I mean, I, I could, I, I've no evidence for this, of course, I'm just kind of reading into it. And that's the great thing about Dracula. People can read whatever they like into Dracula. You can look at the novel Dracula and say it's inspired by, some people have argued that it's inspired by Irish landlords, that Dracula is an Irish landlord. And then other people have said that he's representative of Charles Stuart Parnell, who's the very opposite of the Irish landlord. So it's really an open book in that sense. And I think that's why it resonates with a lot of people. Dracula, the monster, can represent whatever monster you have in your own life. Or it can represent the monster of the day. Back in the 1990s, you had the AIDS epidemic. And that memorable film, Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, came out. And everybody at the time said, oh, look what Coppola has done it's representative of the AIDS epidemic, you know, this whole idea of a contagion coming in. But yeah, the novel can represent anything horrible um, and you can identify that. Well, that's very interesting, Marion, because in a way, Dracula is a very erotic book. Like there's a lot of sexual tension to it as well. And I suppose we do tend to sometimes see death and sex mixed together in literature. Yeah, you could you could argue that in some instances in Dracula, yeah, there are pretty erotic sections in it. But also, you know, other people have read into that as Stoker using it as a metaphor for, you know, the punishment for that, which is sexually transmitted disease. And a lot of people have said that Dracula is representative of another disease, which is syphilis. And there is an awful lot of conjecture that Stoker died from from complications from syphilis you know, and the subject of eroticism and sexual goings on. Others have said that Stoker wrote the book throughout the 1890s when Oscar Wilde's trials were going on. And you had some pretty salacious details being revealed there as well in the newspapers. And of course, Bram Stoker has a connection to Wilde in that his wife, Florence, had been a girlfriend of Oscar Wilde's back in the day. And she had... Again, the details aren't very clear, but it looks like she left Oscar Wilde for Bram Stoker. And there's that sort of unresolved tension, that love triangle between Dracula, Jonathan Harker and Mina Harker. And a lot of people have said that that love triangle is replicated in Bram Stoker's personal life, but it's not really a love triangle. But And then, of course, some people have said that Stoker was a repressed homosexual and that he saw Wilde living the life that he could have lived. Bram Stoker was really careful to cover up his tracks from where he got his literary inspiration. He was really careful. He was very private. But what I discovered was, and I, I didn't discover this, but it's an open, an open thing. But he did an interview in 1897, soon after Dracula came out. And he said that he had got the idea of uh, Dracula, which up until publication, the working title of the book had been called The Undead. And Stoker said that he got the idea for Dracula, the kernel of it came from live burials, the idea that somebody could be buried alive before they were dead. And this kind of brings us back to cholera, because in Sligo in 1832, as Fiona and myself will soon tell you, there were an awful lot of live burials. So Fiona, the speculation is that Bram Stoker's Dracula is based on the 1832 cholera epidemic in Sligo. First of all, what is cholera and how did it get to Ireland? Hi there, John. Thanks for having us on. I suppose we're looking at cholera and we're looking at Dracula here. And I've been fortunate to um, join forces with Marion because we have quite complementary, if very different ways of looking at the cholera epidemic. The 1832 cholera epidemic was in many ways has huge similarities to the, the current coronavirus pandemic. 
Cholera is effectively, it's a diarrheal disease. So you get cholera. Cholera is, is caused by a bacteria which is passed through water. And of course, we all know the importance of drinking clean water. We, we tend to forget it because everything is so well treated these days. But certainly anybody who's been a traveller to a third world country, or even maybe not so much a third world country, you, you're always don't drink the water. You're always worried about keeping the water clean. So cholera actually uh, spread from India. There were several different waves of it in the 19th century. Um, and the first waves came via British troop movements around India uh, wow. in and around 1820. And it gradually spread westwards, very similar to the coronavirus in that it, it spread west with troop movements. It spread right around India. And then it eventually got to the Volga River. And from the Volga River, it travelled by a ship. Often what happened was the bacteria got into bilge water in ships and often water was used as a kind of a ballast or just simply water in, in the bottom of ships. And then, of course, it would get picked up by people, the soldiers. It spread to Moscow and then from Moscow it spread to the Baltic ports. And once it got to the Baltic ports, it rapidly spread uh, throughout northern Europe. And it came to Britain via Hamburg, which is a major port on, on the North Sea. And it arrived in Belfast in Ireland in early 1832, having already been in Britain several months. So it wasn't just a Sligo-based uh, epidemic. It, it was effectively a, a pandemic. Ireland was no stranger to epidemics at the time. We had typhus and typhoid and things like that. But cholera was new and it must have been incomprehensible really to people, this new disease. What horrified people most about it was the rapidity of the disease. You could literally die within a day or two days. It's highly transmissible, it's highly infectious. And because it was transmitted through water and people didn't understand that, they would constantly give people water to drink. But the problem with bacteria that causes this is called Vibrio cholerae. And part of the etiology of that bacteria is it causes you to have an enormous thirst so you keep drinking more water but you pass it in a form of diarrhea and anybody who's been in Haiti with the cholera epidemic in Haiti a, a number of years ago it's, it's incredibly devastating and they didn't know how to cure it in 1832 but by drinking contaminated water it was like a vicious circle so you drank the contaminated water you you know you evacuated your bowels really fast and that got thrown into the water which you drank again effectively so it was a vicious circle what it did cause it caused massive dehydration and it also caused what's called hypervolemic shock so eventually your blood pressure dropped because you didn't have enough fluid uh, in your body and that sent people into um sort of a, almost a, a kind of um, organ failure the most frightening thing for anybody looking on was that the victims often turned blue because their their whole circulatory system had collapsed. So it was called the, the blue death um, is, is often what it was called. I was fascinated reading um, your article about this, Fiona, about the uh, 1832 epidemic. And of course, this is at the time when people thought diseases were caused by unclean air and so on. So there was fires lit in the streets, which they thought would purify the air. You know, it was had a surreal kind of feeling about it. One of the strange things about cholera is that it was very associated with foul air and miasma. They didn't understand bacteriology. So a lot of the medical opinion was based on theories that we now find quite odd, to say the least. But at the time, that was all they had. So 
what happened in, in Sligo beforehand, there was a very strange weather pattern noted before the arrival of the cholera. It was sort of a sultry part of the summer and they were the days of the worst infection. And Dr. Irwin, who was the chief physician at the fever hospital, he recorded the temperature as fluctuating erratically from 10 degrees to 25 degrees. And he felt that Sligo's location in a hollow, the town is in quite a hollow, provided ideal conditions for the spread of the infection. So he was clearly a proponent of the miasma theory, this idea that foul air or foul odours spread infection. But of course, there was no germ theory of disease. So they, they simply couldn't understand why it kept spreading. They didn't. They couldn't see it in the water. The water looked clean, but of course it wasn't. Bram Stoker's mother, I believe, was in Sligo at the time of the cholera epidemic. And can you give us an idea of some of the things she may have seen that may have inspired uh, some of the elements of the Dracula tale? Well, um, certainly Charlotte was a young 14-year-old girl and Marion will tell you a little bit more about her later. But effectively what she has done is left us with a, a first-hand account of the epidemic in a small town from a, the point of view of a young girl, which I think is quite interesting because it's not often that we hear the voices of the people themselves. It's not quite a contemporary account in that she wrote it uh, later in life, but from reading it, and again, Marion will have a better take on this from a literary point of view, from reading it, it seems quite authentic. It's not embellished by later memories. And I find that quite an interesting thing when you're looking for authentic reports and when you're examining the reasons people write things. So she lived in a small street, about 300 metres from where I live at the moment. She lived in Old Marcus Street. Her family were relatively, well, pretty well off because her father was revenue police. Her diary starts with the words that the contagion came from the east. Gradually, the terror grew on us. We heard of it nearer and nearer. It was in Germany. It was in England. And then with wild fright, it was in Ireland. So these are the sort of anticipatory anxiety, I suppose, that she, she as a young girl had about it. She's seen lots of things. She's seen many of the people in her street die. And, and Old Market Street would have been quite a, a well-off street with tall three-storey houses at the time. Dr Little's family lived in it. They were well-off. They died. It went over about 24 days, which is just short of a month. And people gradually stopped going out. There was no sound in the street. People locked their doors. They didn't interact with their neighbours. Uh, and gradually, one by one, the people in her street died. But the, her own family didn't, possibly because they may have had their own water supply. That's what myself and Marion suspect. And they practice social isolation. But I think it's eerie echoes of, of, of what we've just experienced ourselves, you know. And I walked up and down Old Market Street quite a bit during the, the lockdown here. And I kept thinking of the words she wrote almost 200 years ago and that they still echo today. Fiona, could you tell us how well prepared was Sligo for this epidemic at the time? Like what was the medical infrastructure in the county in the early 19th century? Um, so we often look back at history and we think that there was no medical care in the past and that people were specifically left to suffer all the diseases that circulated in pre-famine Ireland. But of course, that's not necessarily the case. We had vaccination in Ireland from 1800, smallpox vaccination, which was very, very widespread, not something we necessarily think of. And then we had the great typhus epidemic around 1816, 1817, which killed around 65,000 people. So by the time that the cholera came to Ireland, there was actually quite a large network of about 500 free dispensaries for the poor. There was fever hospitals, which we had one in Sligo, and there was actually some doctors who worked at these dispensaries. And it was relatively free and affordable. So we don't think about that. So they were quite prepared, right? 
So what happened then, they reactivated a board called the Irish Central Board of Health in October 1831, and it's often called the Cholera Board, and that distributed grants to the local boards of health. And the local boards of health were charged with managing the disease at a local level, which they did pretty well considering what they could do, you know. So the board issued regulations uh, about what to do and what not to do. They wanted to remove suspected cases to a temporary cholera hospital. Medical depots were to be established in larger areas to assist the supply of medicine and equipment. And they also issued weekly reports and statistics of the progress of the disease, which were reported enthusiastically in the papers. Those who had suffered from cholera were ordered to isolate for 14 days after they recovered. And it's, it's almost identical to what we've been hearing for the last couple of months here, really. So it's a real eerie echo of today's coronavirus regulations. But the central board, interestingly enough, in Dublin, sent experienced doctors to places that had severe outbreaks, but not enough medical staff. And the cost of these men had to be met by the local boards of health, which pulled a huge amount of grants out of the central board of health. And just to give you an idea of, of, of the kind of money that the board of health granted, in 1832 alone, the Central Board of Health granted £148,000 sterling throughout Ireland spent on cholera, and that's the equivalent of £14 million sterling today, and that was in only a nine-month period. So I think that's quite uh, quite an extraordinary amount of money that we don't think was spent on the poor Irish peasants. We tend to be a little bit defensive that we were left to our own devices, but in actual fact, we weren't. That was a huge intervention, proportionately much bigger than the British government's intervention for cholera in Britain. It was proportionately more spent here, which I think is, is, is quite interesting. What they did on a local level, huge emphasis on cleanliness and fumigation and the importance of pure water, which is a bit paradoxical given that it wasn't pure. Temperance, no alcohol and lots of physical exercise. And again, you know, the whole thing of physical cleanliness, take it easy on the old wine o'clock and get out and get exercise in your two or five kilometres. Very, very similar um, instructions from a central board of health. And I find all this quite interesting in itself, you know. Public gatherings were discouraged and the banning of wakes, which is uh, similar to what happened now. They did understand the idea of, of the disposal of human waste, of faeces. So in Ennis, for example, they had 48 men to remove nine cartloads of manure and all the insanitary privies behind houses in Sligo, they were a particular source of concern. And, you know, they just dropped toilets. And there was a big push from the local health board here in Sligo to dig those deeper. So they understood in some way the connection between human waste and disease, but they didn't understand. They understood it in a sort of a, an experiential way, but not in a medical way. And that kind of mitigated against any sort of concentrated medical attack of the disease. Well, Fiona, how sophisticated was medical care in Ireland at that time in terms of, say, like the nursing profession? I suppose you have to look at the fact that there was quite a number of highly qualified doctors qualified for the time. And in Sligo, um, the I suppose we call them now frontline health workers, but in Sligo at the time, there was seven, I think, seven doctors. And in terms of nursing, nursing didn't exist as a profession at all. Um, before Florence Nightingale's great sort of revolution of the profession and uh, when the profession became quite feminised, for want of a better word. The only real nurses they had were what we probably would now call care assistants who effectively washed the body, you know, fed people food and cleaned the beds and cleaned the linen. So 
nursing simply didn't exist. So it was mostly the kind of nursing that your mammy would do at home when you're sick, that sort of stuff. But that's not medical nursing. Before the famine in Ireland, a medical officer, that is a doctor or, or an apothecary, ran a greater risk of death from contagious disease than any other country in Europe at the time. They were middle class, but they were exposed to diseases that middle class generally would not have seen. But Irish doctors were exposed to these diseases over a long period of their professional life. And a significant proportion of them in the pre-famine period uh, contracted typhus and, and died of it. And of course, with cholera, there were seven doctors in Sligo died of cholera during that short six week period. One of the interesting things that you've written about as well is that Sligo being a regional, relatively large town, there's going to be a lot of people from the countryside coming in from markets. There's a port there. How does Sligo react to preventing potentially infected people coming into the town? Okay, so I suppose Sligo in 1832 was the eighth largest town in the island of Ireland at the time. It was the chief market town of the northwest, and as you said, it, it was a, a port. It was the third largest port on the western seaboard after Limerick and Galway, and it contained around 15,000 people. And that would have been out of a county population of maybe close to maybe close to 90,000. So it's the only big urban centre in Sligo, the only big urban centre really between Ballina and Enniskillen, that sort of way. So it's a real hub. So how did people react to it? Well, initially, once the cholera raged, and I really mean rage because it, it spread rapidly, the initial reaction of people uh, who could was to flee the town. So out of a population of 15,000, they literally decamped to the surrounding countryside and only left about three or four thousand people in the town centre. Some of them were well off, like the uh, Stokers, and they had their own big house. But the vast majority of them were the very poor, those who lived in kind of cabins and small thatched houses on the periphery of town, those who were going to be more likely susceptible to the disease. The, the people outside the town dug ditches across the road. They didn't want these urban refugees going to the countryside. Cholera is effectively an urban disease because of high concentrations of population and concentration of water supplies and the intensity of trying to get rid of human waste. That's really what it's all about. So they dug ditches across the road. They wouldn't let people out of the town. It was very hard for supplies to get into town, fresh milk and the like. And for six weeks, a huge percentage of the population camped under ditches, literally a mile outside town. Uh, the only thing that got through was the Dublin mail coach, because the mail coach always had an armed guard and nobody was going to stop an armed guard. Marion, what parallels can you draw from the experience of Stoker's mother and her family during the epidemic? And what eventually do you think made its way into the novel Dracula? Well, her experiences culminated in an account that she wrote in 1873 called Experiences of Cholera in Ireland. And this is a, an 11 page document. It's currently in, it's unpublished. It's in the Special Collections Library of Trinity College Dublin. As Fiona just said there, it, it's a great kind of first hand eyewitness account of cholera. So what I did was I read the account and then I read the novel Dracula and I compared Charlotte's experiences document with local history and what the local historians Wood Martin and O'Rourke were saying about cholera at the time. Because it was well known. I mean, I didn't discover this document of Charlotte Thorny Stoker's. People have known about this for years. So biographers of Bram Stoker have always known that she wrote this account of cholera. But they kind of passed it off as, oh, when Bram Stoker was a little boy and he was quite sickly when he was a child, 
he, he was bedridden for much of his childhood. And the other people were saying, well, you know, Charlotte would have sat in on his bed telling him stories, all these macabre stories of the Psycho's cholera outbreak, which is pretty inappropriate, really, um, when, I, when I tell you some of the details of her account. But that's how it was sort of framed and passed off. But I think it had a bigger influence because somebody commissioned her to write in 1873 all of her experiences down. It's been passed off as, you know, somehow influential. But when Fiona and I welcomed Dacre Stoker, uh, that's the great grandnephew of Bram Stoker and the great great grandson of Charlotte Thornley Stoker, we welcomed him to Sligo last year. He kind of said that it had more of an influence than other people had suspected. And he agreed with that because he was telling us that according to their family history, Bram commissioned Charlotte to write that account in 1873. So why did he commission her to do that? I reckon that he wanted it on paper and he wanted to cross-reference it. So what I did was I read the novel Dracula, I looked at Charlotte's account and then I compared it with the local history. And what emerges is, as Fiona said, lots of parallels between Dracula and Sligo's cholera. So at the start there of what Fiona was saying, um, she was talking about cholera coming in by ship and that it was a horrific unknown contagion that nobody had ever dealt with before and that it caused an awful lot of fear. It was very indiscriminate. So cholera struck people that were well off and well fed. It didn't just strike the usual poor and um, impoverished people. So middle class families like the Thornleys, Stoker's maternal grandparents, would have been very fearful of this as a disease. So you have this whole idea of cholera coming in by ship, people not knowing what it is. And in Charlotte's account, she starts off her account that this terrible plague was coming from the east and that it was traveling by ship and that it could come in over land as a mist and it would break itself in two and it would travel north and travel south. And of course, who does that sound like? You know, that sounds a bit like Dracula to me. And of course, then her account goes into really grim detail about the live burials in Sligo, because what happened was really when somebody was badly affected by cholera, they didn't really have great treatment for them. So they would basically drug patients. And in an awful lot of cases, it was rumoured that many cholera patients were just simply placed in mass graves, not too far from the hospital, because there was no hope for them. So you'd have nursing staff just putting them into graves when they weren't fully dead because they were about to die anyway and they had to free up beds. So you have a good few instances in Charlotte's account of people being buried before they were fully dead. And one or actually two instances where people were retrieved from coffins or mass graves and they lived afterwards. They actually survived. There's a couple of other things about Charlotte's account that resonate with Dracula as well. And that's the priest's. Father Gillern, a pretty heroic priest who appears in Charlotte's account, who, in order to protect the cholera patients, he sits at the top of the stone staircase in the hospital with a horsewhip, ready to punish any nurses he caught abusing cholera victims. Charlotte's account was so credible. It, it stacks up with what the local historians say, but it also stacks up in that there's verifiable people from history there. Dr. Little is in it. He was a real person. Father Gilleran is in it. He was also a real person. So she's a credible eyewitness. So of course, in Dracula, then you have Catholicism is the big kind of, you know, Catholic piety symbols uh, emerge to vanquish the vampire. 
And then, of course, you had the heroic doctors in Sligo, who many of whom died. And you have heroic doctors in Dracula as well. But what really kind of sealed the deal for me and my research, and I'm just going to let you know here about the storm. Now, Fiona alluded to the storm there earlier and the weird weather conditions that were noted in Sligo before cholera made its appearance. And you have this in Dracula as well. I'm going to quote here from Wood Martin, one of the historians. He wrote that the arrival of cholera to Sligo was heralded by an unusual storm, describing it as thunder and lightning accompanied by a close hot atmosphere. While another historian, O'Rourke, explained, in the morning there was a frightful thunderstorm which the people regarded as the forerunner of the dreadful cholera. And as the day advanced, they learned that the cholera was already in their midst. Now, O'Rourke and Wood Martin were writing in the 1880s and Stoker would have had access to them. And as I said earlier, Stoker was a big library researcher. He liked to cross-reference things and look things up. Charlotte mentions no storm in her account. But in Dracula, a storm comes before the arrival of Count Dracula, occurring the day before the Count makes landfall in England. And I'm going to quote from Dracula here. And Stoker wrote, one of the greatest and suddenest storms on record has just been experienced here. The weather had been somewhat sultry, but not to any degree uncommon in the month of August. Now, look, at you could say that that's a pure coincidence. But what comes next then is what date did cholera actually occur in Sligo? And that's what really ties it up for me, because Charlotte, at the very beginning of her account, she says, I can't remember the date. She's open about it. She says it's back in my childhood. I can't remember the exact date when this happened. But Wood Martin gives us an, a date and he tells us that August the 11th, 1832, a fair day in Sligo, was when cholera made its appearance in Sligo. And if you look at Dracula, you will see that August the 11th is the date on which um, the vampire arrives. He's, he's already in England. That's when his initial victim, that's when his first victim is taken. So, you know, as a writer, you're kind of thinking that can't be a coincidence because there's too many other parallels. There's also the whole idea as well about smell. In the historical accounts, long after Sligo's cholera abated, there's a smell in town you know, from the mass graves, that the, the graves, an awful lot of other graves as well, they weren't buried deep enough. It's noted by a visitor to Sligo uh, six weeks after the epidemic that there's a terrible lingering smell. And of course, in Dracula as well, you have smells being associated with the Count in the sense that he leaves a smell everywhere he is. So in Carfax Abbey, where he lives in London, it has, I'm quoting here, an earthly smell as if of some dry miasma, which came through the fouler air. And we tend to think of Dracula, you know, this Bella Lugosi kind of clay bang, sexy type. But in the novel Dracula, Dracula is a bit of a creep, you know, he's, he's old, he's got long hair and long fingernails and he smells. So, you know, we have this idea that we know the character of Dracula, but when you look at Stoker's original novel, uh, he's not as sexy, shall we say. He smells. So there's all of that in Charlotte's account. And it is tied up for me by the fact that it's August the 11th, the storm, the smells, the doctors, the priests, the live burials, of course. And of course, the horror, that unknown contagion that's coming to, to get you. So Bram Stoker was so affected by his mother's account of cholera that he heavily drew from it to create Count Dracula. And I think he asked her to write her account down. And I think he then cross-referenced it with local historical accounts. 
basically he lifted the whole story for a short story of his called The Invisible Giant, which was published in a collection of short stories in 1881 called Under the Sunset. Charlotte, I think, had a great, great influence over her son's literary and creative imagination. What most people always associate with horror movies and those monster movies from that type of period is the terror of the townsfolk down below. And Fiona, if I could ask you, was there much violence in the town in Sligo? Because it must have been a terrifying time to think about when so many of your neighbours and perhaps family members are losing their lives. Was there a lot of violence there? Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, cholera was actually marked out because of the incident of cholera riots. And these weren't just unique to Sligo or Ireland. They actually happened all over Europe. And um, it's the first time, really, I suppose, that you have a public reaction to a disease in the sense that it can almost topple governments. And I suppose one of the most famous cholera riots, is people wouldn't have made the connection with it, is in Paris is in the 1832 Paris Uprising, which, of course, is everybody knows but doesn't know from the famous musical Les Miserables. And that's, you know, the modern blockbuster musical. The uprising that you see, lots of people think that's the French Revolution, but of course it's not. It's, it's this slightly bourgeois uprising of 1832, which was caused in part by the massive outbreak of cholera in Paris uh, during the spring of that year. So that was one of the international examples of cholera, but you can see them all over Britain and all over Europe. And of course, what happened in Sligo, and indeed in other places in Ireland, in Britain alone, there were over 72 cholera riots recorded over an 18-month period. And in Ireland, you see, this situation was really compounded by the abject poverty of the great mass of people, and of course, the political situation at the time. It's the time of the Tide Wars, which is already a time of sectarian tension. But there were 22 riots recorded in in Ireland during the period in 1832, three in Sligo and two in Boyle, and then at other towns right throughout the country, like Derry and Drogheda and Clermaris. But there's no evidence really between the severity of the outbreak with the actual riots. Violence flared really based on rumour or superstition. And even in Ballyshannon, which is near here, there was a mob caused considerable damage to the hospital, despite the fact that the local physician were working relentlessly for the poor. And another thing which I found very interesting during the research for this is a lot of these mobs, these sort of flash mobs, they were full of women and children, not necessarily men. So it really was a sort of a mob mentality is is a whole speciality in itself. And the slightest rumour can spark, as we've seen over the last few weeks, the slightest rumour, the slightest action can spark quite a nasty uh, reaction, despite the fact that everything we've seen how much money the the government was the British government was pouring into Ireland in order to counteract cholera, but that still stopped people from rioting. And in in Sligo, um, really, what happened was people didn't want a cholera hospital beside them. And this was the same in lots of other towns because they were afraid of of contagion, they were afraid of contamination, something similar to where we are at the minute. You know, we don't really want to meet people because ooh. You know, what if all these Dubliners come to, you know, the west of Ireland? Are they going to bring the plague with them? And that's effectively how people thought in 1832. So, I mean, if what they had tried to do, they set up, wanted to set up initially, which I find curious, the Board of Health banned the use of county hospitals and fever hospitals for cholera, which you think is a little strange. But they wanted to keep those hospitals for other patients who might not have cholera. Very similar again to what we've experienced. In Sligo, they set up a temporary hospital between the fever hospital and the county hospital. And eventually the fever hospital was taken over as well. So these were kind of field hospitals. But uh, a particular, a ruffinly mob in John Street 
there was an old warehouse in John Street that the Board of Health was going to set up as a temporary hospital. And of course, the people in John Street rioted against this and came into the centre of the town. They attacked the medical officers with clubs and even they came in from the countryside and they said, we'll have no Board of Health, we'll have no cholera hospitals, we don't want to be infected. There was widespread resistance to the creation of what were seen as centres of pestilence, you know, with the great terminology from it. But as the epidemic moved on and as so many medical men died in the line of duty, the incidence of the riots decreased. But it left a sense of pessimism really amongst the poor and the rich in, in its aftermath. And um, Fiona, quick question here. Can you give us an idea of the final death toll of the cholera epidemic? We should talk about the Irish death toll, really. What was a characteristic feature of cholera was its high morbidity and high mortality rate. And in Ireland, around 40% of those who contracted cholera died. And in some of the more densely populated urban towns, which is really what I'm trying to study with this my, my current research, the mortality rate was almost 70%. In other words, 70% of those who contracted the disease died. So if you compare that with with coronavirus, which is, is our own our own experience, it's, you know, less than 2%. Uh, and that's a phenomenal difference. So you can see the devastating effect it has. In Sligo Town, the mortality rate was over 50%. And if you think that was in a town where three quarters of the population had already fled. So this is a mortality rate of 50% in a reduced population of only about 4,000. And in Sligo, in fact, had the greatest number of deaths in all of the Irish provincial towns. Almost 700 people are recorded as having died. I would suspect the real total is closer to 1,000. And the only towns in Ireland that exceeded Sligo's death toll are Limerick, Cork and Dublin, which of course are major urban centres with a, a massive population. Limerick only recorded 1,100 deaths in comparison to Sligo's 700 deaths with a greater population. And really, uh, what I think is astounding, the great British industrial towns of Manchester and Leeds, which were not quite as big as, you know, this is just slightly before they became major cities. But Manchester and Leeds only recorded 700 deaths throughout the epidemic. And that's an indication of the severity of the epidemic in the west of Ireland. Okay, in terms of cases, there was probably around 1200 patients admitted to the Sligo Hospital. But how many more were still sick at home? We don't really know. The overall Irish death toll was estimated at about 50,000, but that's considered by most scholars as being a conservative figure. So you could actually, you know, maybe maybe not double it, but certainly you could say it would be closer to 70 or 80,000 in a nine-month, 10-month period. And if you just consider Sligo Town Fever Hospital, on one day alone, the 24th of September, 61 people died in one day. If you can imagine, if 61 people had died in one hospital in one day at the height of the coronavirus here, you can see the effect of it. Proportionately, the cholera mortality rates in Ireland were much higher than in Britain. You know, England and Wales had 0.16 mortality rate, whereas Ireland had a 0.33%. So the Irish population of 7.7 million had a much higher mortality rate than did that of England, Wales and Scotland. And it wasn't the last cholera epidemic in Ireland, was it? No, I mean, there were several outbreaks after it. Uh, Sligo experienced the bad one again during the famine. I mean, that's the one, of, sometimes there's quite a lot of confusion between the 1832 epidemic and the 1847-48 epidemic. But there was a better system in place to manage it. And 
it's hard to really be concrete about the cholera deaths during the famine simply because people died of so many other things. Um, it, it was kind of a layers upon layers of malnutrition, hunger, disease and exposure in many cases. Cholera sort of faded out towards the end of the 19th century, primarily due to a better knowledge of germ theory of disease and more importantly in Sligo and other urban towns was a mass programme of proper disposal of human waste and purification of water. In Sligo, after the cholera epidemic, there was over 25 miles of proper brick sewers laid, which have survived right down to the present day. Are there any characters in Irish mythology that correspond to Dracula? When you're looking back through Irish myths and legends, is there anyone where you could say, well, that's a, that's a vampire-type character that may have also inspired Stoker? Well, the whole idea of folklore of Bram Stoker is a really interesting one because he was a great friend of Lady Wilde. And Lady Jane Wilde, she was also known as Sperenza. She was a, an Irish nationalist. She was a great woman in her own right. And she used to host these salons when he lived in Dublin. And he would attend these salons in their Dublin house. And of course, Lady Wilde was the wife of Sir William Wilde, and he was a great antiquarian and historian himself. And of course, the parents of Oscar Wilde, and he was quite tied up with that family. But Lady Wilde, big into folklore, William Wilde, big into folklore. And at the moment, I'm just putting the finishing touches to my book on Irish folk customs. And I actually used Lady Wilde as a coincidence, as a major source in that. And there's so much you could draw out of her writings that could have influenced Bram Stoker, but there's so little evidence. In other types of Irish folklore, you know, his mother, Charlotte, again, I, I don't have a source for this, it's hearsay, but apparently Charlotte heard the banshee when her own mother died um, not long after the cholera epidemic, a few years after it in Sligo. And Lady Wilde, of course, had heard of the banshee as well. And of course, there's that one, the whole idea about Dracula somehow being inspired by the Irish words druk ola, which is refers to bad blood. And again, I haven't really found any evidence for that. There's also a myth that comes from County Derry, where Stoker's paternal family hailed from. And that was in relation to Avertak. And I'm sure you might have heard this one, but Avertak was an old chieftain. He was quite evil and he died and he kept coming back from the dead, demanding a bowl of blood from his terrified people. And eventually he was slain by another chieftain called O'Kane. That one is a bit problematic for me because um, I think that that one came out, it was written by Patrick Weston Joyce in the 19th century. And again, I, I'm kind of looking for evidence to see if that goes beyond the 19th century, like if it goes further back than that. So again, that whole idea of Stoker being influenced by Irish folklore, it's inconclusive, but it's likely. And of course, you have to remember as well, he worked in parts of rural Ireland and would have been quite familiar with the accent and the mannerisms of the people of the west of Ireland, particularly. So it's likely he could have had folkloric, but there's there's no proof. Marion, could you tell us about the Sligo Stoker Society and what work you're doing to popularise the connection between Stoker and Sligo? Well, the Stoker Society, it's a voluntary local history group. We're very small. Um, Fiona and I are in it along with some other people. And we aim to highlight the historic connections between Bram Stoker and Sligo. For years, people knew there was a connection that people people were saying, oh, yeah, Stoker's mother was from Sligo. But the, the whole cholera thing 
was never really tied into that. And I suppose what we're doing is we're trying to highlight that and hopefully create a bit of interest around it and hopefully get people to come and visit. So we have a website, it's sligobramstoker.weebly.com and all of our research work that we do is up there. Uh, last year, we organized some signage. So we erected information signage for the public to view in some locations across Sligo town, which explained the Dracula connection and the significance of the 1832 cholera epidemic. And for the first time we published in full Charlotte Thornley Stoker's experiences of the cholera in Ireland. And you can actually read that in full on these boards that we created. The locations are St. John's Cathedral, Sligo Abbey Visitor Centre, uh, Sligo County Library, the Yates Building and Sligo University Hospital. And all of these are kind of key sites associated with cholera as well. And I have to say, I'm really thankful to um, the Special Collections Department at Trinity College Dublin because they gave us permission to reprint Charlotte's account in full. And last October, then we had uh, Dacre Stoker, who is a best-selling author in his own right, but he's the great grandnephew of Bram Stoker. And he came to Sligo and he unveiled our public signage trail for us. And when we were talking to Dacre and we were giving him the tour of Sligo, Fiona gave him the tour, showed him where we think their family house was and, and gave him the stories. He became more convinced, actually, that Charlotte Thornley is the model for Mina Harker in Dracula. And I thought this was really interesting that he believes this. And, you know, based on what I've been saying today, you know, the, there's an awful lot going for that. You know, it's a first hand account and it's a very credible account as well. I mean, if I can just ask a kind of an abstract question to kind of finish up for both of you. We've had a number of parallels in our discussion about the cholera epidemic in the 1830s and our current pandemic. Do you think that there'd be any kind of popular culture repercussions from this pandemic in any way similar to Dracula? Will it percolate into people's minds and influence how they view the world in the future? It's kind of an abstract question, I admit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope so, you know. The whole lockdown thing has hopefully made fertile the imaginations of lots and lots of creative people. But I, I would think so, you know. And look, the Sligo cholera epidemic took place way back in 1832 and Dracula wasn't published until 1897. So it was there. It was it was the seed was in Stoker's mind. It took that long to come out. And who knows what will come out in the future? But I certainly hope so. That was a fascinating conversation. Really appreciate having both of you on. That was Dr. Marion McGarry and Dr. Fiona Gallagher. And if you'd like to look at their blogs and read some of the more of the articles that they've written about this subject, you can go to drmarionmcgarry.weebly.com and drfionagallagher.weebly.com. And both those links will be in the show notes as well. So my name is Cahill Brennan and on behalf of myself and my co-presenter, thank you very much. And if you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, you can go to our website, that's irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at irishhistorypod or follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. So until next time, thank you very much for joining us.